Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, a recent poll indicates that nearly 20% of Generation Z identify as LGBTQ. We are destroying children because of a fad. And in states like Oregon, they want to prohibit counseling for individuals who seek counseling in this area of their life. Speech, prayer, sharing one's testimony, of leaving homosexuality, all of those things are contained within this ban. George Barna looks at the values crisis driving it all. World citizens are far less likely to say that they would fight for the Christian faith. And he points us to the discipleship modeled by Christ. He spent most of his time in the trenches with 12 yahoos. I'm Georgine Rice. Glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with a look at the alarming rise in transgender identity among today's youth. A new Gallup poll confirms that increasing numbers of young people have rejected their biological sex in favor of a transgender identity. We see this dynamic in the nation at large, but it's most acute among young people. From Gallup, and I quote, adult members of Generation Z who were aged 18 to 25 in 2022 are the most likely subgroup to identify as LGBT with 19.7 percent doing so. That's nearly 20 percent. Now, some states like Ohio are pushing back by working hard to protect young people. Here's Bob Burney, my colleague on WRFD, The Word, in Columbus, Ohio. We were talking about a piece of legislation that is desperately needed here in Ohio. I believe you already have a piece of legislation similar to this in Florida. It would forbid the administration of hormone treatments, cross-hormone treatments, sexual reassignment surgery for adolescents, for teenagers, for children. It would bar it, and it should be barred. Because, again, folks, listen, I'm about to speak like an expert. I'm not one. I am not an expert on anything. I continue to tell my listeners that. But I have a brain. I read. And I think, all right, all you have to do is do a little bit of reading and use your brain to understand that this whole transgenderism thing is a complete hoax. Now, I have been saying this for years, publicly, on the radio, off the radio, and so far, no one has disputed it. And it is this. There is no scientific evidence whatsoever for transgenderism. None. Zero. Zip. Zilch. Nada. No scientific evidence. And yet, we are surrounded. Transgender this, transgender this. We got to protect transgender kids. We got to stand up for transgenders. Scientifically, it doesn't exist. There is gender dysphoria, which simply means confusion. Yes, people are confused about their gender. Yes, that is true. 
That is a scientific and psychiatric and psychological fact. Gender dysphoria exists. How do you treat it? Therapy. Counseling. It is confusion about your gender. Here is the first thing you do when someone is confused. You don't embrace their confusion. If you're not familiar with the term social contagion, it's a fancy term for fad. In other words, you do what everybody else is doing. And that summarizes the whole LGBTQIA plus, 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 plus movement in America. Social contagion. It's become popular. Kids are watching TikTok, Snapchat. They're watching on uh, video after video after video. Their friends are coming out transgender. Now, how do I know that? Listen to this headline. One in six Generation Z adults identify as LGBTQIA+. One in six. Quote, this is the highest percentage of any generation in history. Where am I getting this? Gallup. This is their latest survey. One in six Gen Z adults Say, hmm, I think I'm LGBTQIA+. We've never had this before. If it was genetic, this would have been pretty constant throughout the generations. But it hasn't been constant. In addition, quote, the share of the American population identifying as LGBTQ has doubled over the past decade. Now, again, if this was genetic, if you were born this way, then we would have to find something in the water. But if it is purely a social contagion, if it is a choice, if it's a fad, then the more popular it becomes, the more prevalent it will become. Bottom line, it's a fad, and we are destroying children because of a fad. The poll's findings raise a number of questions and concerns about our culture's casual embrace of volitional change and shifts in sexual orientation and gender identity. To accept this social contagion that Bob Bernie was talking about, in the midst of the cultural confusion, we would do well to recognize that some people regret or even reject their sexual confusion, and they'd like to seek counseling to guide them to an orientation consistent with their biological sex. And yet, in states like Oregon, the left is pushing legislation that would prohibit this kind of counseling, professional free speech. I turned to Ann Edward, executive director of the Restored Hope Network, to talk about House Bill 2458 here in Oregon. I have to begin at the beginning because I'm not sure all of our listeners understand this so-called conversion therapy. Uh, The piece of legislation we're talking about, House Bill 2458, is uh, purported to eliminate conversion therapy here in the state of Oregon. So I wanted to start there because I think there's great 
misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of what this phrase is supposed to mean, but what it actually means and does. Can we begin there? What is conversion therapy that this uh, House bill is supposed to uh, eliminate in Oregon? Well, they mention many things, but essentially they do not eliminate speech, conversations, prayer, sharing one's testimony of leaving homosexuality, etc. So all of those things are actually contained within this ban. Counseling, just talk therapy, spiritual care, that would be considered speech that's prevented here, sharing one's testimony publicly, prayer, all of that is contained within speech prohibition for professional licensed counselors. And it's a, what I'd call it is a nose of a camel's, camel's mm-hmm. nose going in the tent, so to speak. The rest of the body's coming. And uh, if they can prohibit talk therapy for those who seek to leave homosexuality or align with their body, as opposed to embracing cross-sex identity, if they can prohibit that from the conversation, then they can fairly soon say, well, if we prohibit this for adults uh, using licensed therapists, then why are we not prohibiting it for religious individuals who are helping others? So their assumptions are that conversion therapy is aversion. It's Mm. all these horrific practices when, in fact, the American Psychological Association and their task force of 2009, which most of this relies upon, admitted in their document that those are ancient techniques that possibly techniques, I put that in air quotes, from a long time ago in settings very far, far away. Uh, They are not used and have not been used for 50, 70, 100 years. So I think we're fair to say the 11th Circuit Court, which overturned minor bans of conversion therapy, acknowledged it outright. They said, what we're talking about here is purely speech-based therapy. So do we have the right to have uh, adults have the right to look for the kind of care that they want, or is it going to be prohibited? Where does this um, piece of legislation in the Oregon legislature stand today, and what, from your vantage point, are the prospects of it moving forward and ultimately succeeding? Well, honestly, we there was a recent hearing. It was in the um, House Committee for Health and Medical Services. And three out of the, the seven, I believe, are gay individuals who are Democrats and in favor of this bill. One of them was a sponsor of the bill. So that's interesting for sure. But there was also a gentleman on the bill who asked a question. It was very, very telling, the outcome. And we talked about the speech issues and what the U.S. Supreme Court is likely to rule on this based upon the Becerra versus Nifla case, Mm -hmm. uh, where it was ruled professional speech is protected. And the 11th Circuit Court ruling that said it overturned the bans for minors in three states, not just a couple of municipalities, but three states. So we brought that up. Their side argued that the Ninth Circuit Court would back up this law, no problem. But honestly, if it was brought to challenge to the U.S. Supreme Court, the basis is there for overturning all the bans for the entire nation. Because these bans are not based upon horrific treatment. They're based upon speech with which they disagree. Mm -hmm. Which is Um, a popular concept these days. Go ahead. Right. It's the ultimate ban you know, cancel culture, right? Uh, Shutting off the options for people who want them, who seek it, who are not coerced, but actually seeking out the help that they desire. It's shutting off options. 
is what it is. So what's going to happen? Well, if it passes into law, it will be challenged. It will likely go up to the Ninth Circuit Court, which may or may not rule for it. There are potentials. Um, In Washington State, they ruled to back up the minor ban for Washington State recently, but that puts two circuit courts in contrast. And what happens when that situation happens is it's very likely to, to raise that up to the bar of the U.S. Supreme Court. So at that point, it could potentially overturn bans for the entire nation, quite honestly. So if, the, if Oregon State passes this ban for adults, so they cannot seek counseling that they desire. This will no doubt add to the urgency for why the U.S. Supreme Court should hear the case. Honestly, I think it would overturn the bans for the entire nation. Coming up, the erosion of a biblical worldview. World citizens are far less likely to say that they would fight for the Christian faith. When the Christian outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Our nation is changing very quickly. We see it in the confusion about our own biology. We see it in politics, in education, in pop culture. And we see it in our families and in our communities. George Barna now leads the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. They recently released results of a study looking at a dramatic shift in worldview just since the start of the pandemic. Barna was a guest of Don Crow on WAVA in Washington, D.C. I understand that the values of American adults are considered in your study as uh, falling into three segments, integrated disciples, emergent followers, and world citizens. So maybe we could start there, along with the fact that we're defining core values as we do this study. Is that right? Yeah, actually, Don, those three groups represent people according to their worldview. Integrated disciples are people who have a biblical worldview. Emergent followers, the second group, are those who lean toward having a biblical worldview. They embrace some biblical truths and principles. They believe some biblical things. They do some biblical things. But they don't really have a biblical worldview that rules their life. So they're kind of the middle group. And then you've got the group, the third group, world citizens. That's by far the largest of the groups, three out of four American adults. These are people who really don't believe in the Bible. They don't live according to the Bible. They may have a few biblical principles that they buy into, but that's almost by accident more than by intent. And so what we're doing in this study is we're looking at those three different worldview-oriented segments, but then looking at what values do each of those groups buy into. And so in our study, we had 48 different values that we proposed to people, and Values that people say they're willing to die for, they're willing to fight for, they're willing to sacrifice resources in order to maintain them, those are the values that we would identify as core values, things that really matter to people. So in the study, what we were doing was correlating people's worldview 
with their core values. So some of these core values, Christian faith, biblical morality, can you walk us down through those 10? Yeah, I mean, there are certain ones that when you look at the differentiation between integrated disciples, yeah. the you know handful of people across the country, relatively speaking, who have a biblical worldview compared to those who are world citizens, people who ignore, reject, don't accept the biblical worldview, there were uh, uh, roughly a dozen or so that we saw there are major differences between the two groups. So not surprisingly, world citizens are far less likely to say that they would fight for, they would die for, they would sacrifice for the Christian faith. Mm. You find that, of course, integrated disciples would do that. Most Americans would not. Uh, Biblical morality, character, civic duty, humility, the ability to own property, hard work, religious freedom, having a simple lifestyle, living thrifty or, or, or being financially cautious, uh, opportunity, individual growth, control, happiness. These are things that people with a biblical worldview believe are very important in life, so they constitute core values. But that's not the case with world citizens. Again, the three out of four adults in America, they basically reject those. And would it be fair to extrapolate from that, Dr. Barnard, that what you've just cited as true core values uh, of uh, biblical believers today really did kind of reflect itself in the early days of this country. In other words, would it be fair to say that most of the culture in the colonial days and subsequent really did basically have that template as their set of core values? Not all of them necessarily entirely the same, but would that be more reflected then than now? Yeah, very much, Don. I mean, a a few years back, David Barton and I went back and did a study of colonial America, and we tried to identify things such as the core values of the population then. And the values that I just named off, most of them actually were among the core values of colonial Americans. And of course, those would have been the kinds of values that were in the mind and the heart and evident in the lifestyle of the founding fathers as they wrote the core documents, such as the Constitution. And so when we think about what made America great, it was because as a people, we embraced these kinds of values. Fast forward 250 plus years to America today, and what we find is that people are not only rejecting the Constitution, and in many cases, the people who developed it, but they're even rejecting the values on which this nation was built. What does this tell us in terms of where has the church failed, if it has, in these statistics that now reflect the culture so far from where it was just even decades ago, a few decades ago? Well, Don, I I would say the church at large has failed. We failed to intentionally and strategically and consistently focus on people's worldview, whether we're talking about developing it, refining it, measuring it, celebrating a biblical worldview. All of those things are part of the discipleship process. I would say that the big thing for us to keep our eyes on is that Jesus told us that we are here to be his disciples, and that one of the key things that a disciple does is to 
facilitate the development and growth of other disciples. We've kind of lost sight of that. So how do we get back on track with that? Number one is to recognize that a person is most likely to become a disciple when they're a child. We need to go back and focus on children because a person's worldview is developed almost fully by the age of 13, and it rarely changes after that. So if discipleship matters to us, we really have to get on board with this concept of discipling children. And I want to take you to one more statement that you made that really kind of brings it full circle. Perhaps if Christian leaders were less focused on transmitting information about their faith and more focused on building relationships with outsiders, non-believers would be more interested in Christianity. Focusing on building relationships would enable them to demonstrate biblical truths and share their core values rooted in these truths. Dialogue regarding core values could become a pathway to a deeper spiritual conversation about the source of our values and their influence on our behavior. So elaborate a bit more on that. It's so, uh, to me, so seminal. Well, if you study the life of Jesus, one of the things that you're going to find is that he spent most of his time in the trenches with 12 yahoos trying to demonstrate to them what the Christian life looks like in practice. The most important form of his teaching was to develop a relationship with these people so that they trusted him, and then they would listen, then they would observe, then they would imitate. And so that's part of that process that I think we can learn from the Lord himself, is that relationships matter. God sent Jesus to earth to build a relationship with humanity. That's how important those relationships are. And if we're called to the world, to minister to the world, you know, to love people, the way that you do that is through relationships. So that's got to be a central part of what we go about doing. We can talk to we're blue in the face. People aren't going to listen unless they know us, they trust us, they watch us, they see it in action, and then they say, okay, let's have a conversation about this because I don't get it. That's our opening. Coming up, are you concerned about the future of our nation? Christians have sensed the cultural rot earlier than the culture in general. Jerry Boyer, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. In our last segment, George Barna looked at very significant worldview shifts in the nation just since the start of the pandemic. There have been other significant changes since the pandemic began as well. Among them, our nation's spending problem. Are we facing a fiscal crisis? John Hall and Kathy Emmons turn to Jerry Boyer from Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. 
You know, during the pandemic, the federal government was just printing money left and right. Trillions and trillions of dollars, you know, were given away to uh, government, state, local governments. And, of course, with Ukraine, billions and billions of dollars of economic aid. I mean, it, it feels as though our debt's out of control here. Are we on the precipice uh, of a debt crisis here in the U.S.? Well, that's a good question. That's what I spoke uh, at, at this event. So I sp- I'm speaking to the largest gathering of Christian financial professionals. And my conclusion is we're probably not on the precipice, uh, but I can see the cliff from here, I believe. Um, and so, I, you know, for most of my life, um, as being a guest on your show and even when I was doing my own show, I was generally someone who was saying, listen, we can handle these level, this level of debt. There are a lot of people who are just constantly doom mongering. Uh, and there's a lot of that in the Christian community. You know, going back to Larry Burkett, who in the 1980s wrote about, you know, the economic crash that's about to come. And we didn't get that. And I didn't at the time, I wasn't thinking we were going to get it. I was saying, no, the U.S. has far more resiliency than we think. And a debt crisis does not or hyperinflation does not seem to be something that is on the near horizon. But now we're getting to the point where debt levels are high enough. And because we essentially shut down the economy for two years which led to vastly higher debt levels than we'd had before, and a lot of monetary debasement. We we printed money, but we didn't make stuff. Mm -hmm. So you shut down the economy for two years, but you don't shut down the printing press. And that makes money worth less. Mm -hmm. Not worthless, but worth less. Hyperinflation is when it's nearly worthless. So that's caused an inflationary crisis that we're in. And there's a pretty good chance we're going into another recession now. Do you think that Christians are more liable to fall into the uh, doom and gloom than the average person? Yes. And in wh- my experience, yes. And why do you think that is? Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, I think some of them are actually good reasons. Uh, in other words, you can be wrong, but you can be kind of wrong for a good reason. And I think it's because Christians have sensed the cultural rot earlier than the culture in general uh, because we see the presuppositions shifting in the wrong direction. Or somebody, I think it was Carl Henry, said, we're a cut flower civilization. So you cut the stem of a flower. Flower still looks like a flower, even for weeks, but it's cut. And so when we cut ourselves off from Christ uh, and from a biblical worldview— Christians saw that the rot would come and the flower still looked fine. So that's kind of a good reason to be doom and gloom, although we, we're like really early. It kind of takes a long time for that apostasy to uh, cause things to rot. I think the other reason is because something happened around the 1970s with the uh, oh, late Great Planet Earth books mm-hmm. uh, and then the Left Behind books and then the Left Behind series where – There used to be a lot of Christian views about the end times. Some of them were optimistic. The post-millennialists said, no, 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 we're going to win. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. The gospel will spread and spread. Some were amillennialists who said things are going to kind of go on as they were. And some were premillennialists who said things are going to end badly. And you put that together with dispensationalism, and almost all evangelicals came to believe that the Antichrist is coming, and he's coming soon, and everything's going to go be bad, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Now, I don't want to debate those different schools. Sure. All I'm saying is the Puritans came to the United States, and they were postmodernists. They were optimists, so they acted more optimistically, whereas almost all Christian media now 
is dispensational premillennial and not just that but it's going to happen soon mm -hmm. israel became a state in 1948 so it's going to happen 40 years later oh it didn't really become a state until 1973 yom kippur war and they keep pushing that back so i think that our end time speculations have caused us to always be looking for the antichrist when the book that we're reading is the apocalypse of jesus christ mm -hmm. the revelation of jesus christ it's not the revelation of the antichrist we seem to think mm -hmm. it's a book about the Antichrist, yeah. and we're always looking for him, and we don't believe we can win, and so we're more, we're, I think we're more fearful for that reason. And when Jesus said that um, the gates of hell will not, this, up on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, let me remind you, gates are defensive. Mm. Gates never attacked anyone. Uh, gates, are, uh, gates have never been used to gain new territory or to conquer. Gates are where you go when you're under siege. Hell is under siege from heaven. So not, not only in Jesus's analogy are we on the offense and they're on the defense, but in Jesus's analogy, their walls are going to fall like Jericho. It's kind of almost like a, so hell is like Jericho. Coming up, trusting God in the face of uncertainty. The manna that God gives us for today is for today and it's for today's problems. When the Christian outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The pace of life and its many stressors here in North America have been intense for some time. But over the course of these past years, we've added a pandemic, racial unrest and violent protests, an election cycle that exposed a polarized nation and inflation unlike anything we've seen since the 70s. And of course, a war in Europe. So now many who didn't feel the need for help in dealing with stress and anxiety before certainly feel it now. My recent conversation with Jean Holthouse was most helpful. She's the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. She joined me on my program here at KPDQ in Portland. Perhaps we should begin by defining worry and anxiety. Uh, are we talking about a clinical um, anxiety or are we talking about someone who just is agitated? Can you help us understand how you're using these terms? Sure. Um, and that's actually part of what makes this so hard is that we use those words interchangeably. Yes. And it makes it hard to tell if we're, you know, having an anxious moment or someone that has an anxiety disorder. So I think about it in terms of we all are created by God to have a healthy, anxious response when there's something external to us that is a threat. So if a car veers into my lane of traffic, I'm going to have anxiety. And that anxiety is going to push my body into fight, flight, or freeze, which it needs to in order for me to react so that I steer away from that car rapidly or whatever the threat is. But it's healthy anxiety because it helps me deal with an external threat. And as soon as that threat passes, the anxiety begins to dissipate too. So that would be what we would call healthy anxiety. And that's not what Paul was talking about mm -hmm. in Scripture when he says, be anxious for nothing. But then there's this next step over, which we would call worry more, and that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about anxiety, and it's where we're actually responding to something that's not actually present in the current moment. 
we're either thinking about things in the future that haven't happened yet, and we're doing all of the what-ifs about those things, or we're thinking about things in the past and doing the coulda, shoulda, oughta. And in those situations, we have no power to change those things, and there are places where we have to trust our past to God because he's taken care of that, and we need to trust our future to God because he says he'll provide for it. And then one step beyond that is what happens when people get a clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, which is actually a chemical imbalance within the body, which is causing it to live in fight, flight, and freeze either all the time or intermittently when, without us kind of knowing when it's going to happen. Um, so there's kind of that continuum there. Hmm. That's good. You use the story in Exodus about the uh, Israelites to help give us a picture of um, of how to effectively manage our, or to develop these skills and use those skills uh, in trying to um, to manage our anxiety. Can you tell us a bit about that story, how it relates to us in the 21st century and can help us manage and relieve our anxiety? Sure. It's actually one of the stories God has used over and over again in my life because when the Israelites leave um, Egypt, they don't have, they run out of food and they legitimately are hungry. And basically God says, I'm going to give you what you need for the moment that you're in. You can only have enough manna for today. And if you try to get enough for tomorrow today, it's not going to work. It's going to rot. And it does. So every day they have to trust him that he's going to give them what they need for that day. And they can't use what he gave them for that day for the next day. It doesn't work. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble is that we take what God's given us for today and we try to figure out how we could use that to solve problems that might happen tomorrow or 20 years from now. And then we always feel like we don't have what we're going to need then because the manna that God gives us for today is for today and it's for today's problems. It's not enough for what will happen tomorrow or the next day, but he will give us that tomorrow. Um, and kind of they had to learn that over and over and over in the desert, walking with him for um, weeks and months and years, so that when they come back up to the Jordan River to cross over, they can trust that when they step into that river, he's going to give them what they need. And when they cross over into the promised land and they're going to have to drive out the giants that they know are there, he'll give them what they need. So he had to teach them that for them for what took 40 years for them to learn it enough to be able to trust that much. And that's kind of comforting to me because I've lived longer than 40 years and I still don't have it all down pat, but I'm a little better than I was. (laughs) Well, that is somewhat comforting to know that it's going to take a little time. God's not surprised by that and that he's going to continue to uh, to teach us. One of the uh, things that you write about in the book is living in the moment and you suggest an activity that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment rather than uh, projecting uh, into the future and worrying about what may or may not happen or looking back and fretting over what has already happened. How can we, what are some of the activities or at least one um, that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment? One of the things you can do is to use your senses because if you can't see it, hear it, feel it, touch it or taste it in the present moment, yeah. those are the only things that are in the present moment are the things that you can use your senses to observe. And a lot of what we're worrying about has no basis in the present moment. And so when we find our brain kind of off on one of those what ifs, we just come back to, wait a minute, what can I see right now? What can I hear right now? What can I physically feel right now? It helps us to come back to the moment and know that you're going to need to do that over and over again. Our minds are not very well trained. So, you know, you bring yourself back to the moment and you become aware, okay, I'm sitting in my chair. And then you find yourself off thinking about something in the future again. And you just got to be kind to yourself. And just keep bringing yourself back. And as you do that over and over and you use your senses to kind of bring you back to the moment, 
gradually over time, that muscle of staying in the present moment strengthens, but it'll take time and you can use your senses to help you be aware of when you're in the moment and when you're not. Oh, that's so good. How does judgment feed into worry and anxiety? Uh, And can you give us an example? Sure. Um, we all would, we all probably know the scripture that says, don't judge lest ye be judged. And we tend to think about that as, you know, the big things where I'm condemning something or someone like that or something like that. But judgment is any time we take one of our opinions and we turn it into a fact and we act as though it's a fact. And those things increase our distress. And they increase our distress because we're either putting ourselves above someone else or we're putting someone else above us. And because we walk through our days kind of constantly grading ourselves against other people or grading other people, um, we assume that other people are doing that with us as well. And it makes us more anxious as we go through our days. And God says, basically, he's the one that knows to judge. And he's the one that knows ultimate truth. And we're supposed to come to him for those answers. We're not supposed to be trying to figure it out ourselves. And when we can let go of that and just accept the moment we're in and figure out what to do that brings life in that moment, that's when we can um, let go of the judgment and we can live more fully in that moment. But it's really hard to let go of judgment. And we like to judge a lot because I always kind of want to know, like, where do I rank with everybody else? Rather than knowing, wait a minute, I come before God as just me. And he's not judging me anymore because Jesus has already died for everything he would judge me for. So I come to him already accepted. Coming up. God loves us exactly the way we are, and he likes us exactly the way we are. More practical, biblical health for worry and anxiety. Stay with us. The Christian Outlook will be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Christians of all people ought to be equipped to accept the hard truths of real life and even disappointment. After all, we know this world is not our home. But actually embracing our circumstances is oftentimes easier said than done. Let's return for a bit more of my conversation with Jean Holthouse, talking about her book, Managing Worry and Anxiety. You write about unconditionally accepting reality, which, again, Mm -hmm. is uh, something that we can do that keeps us in the present. What do you mean by that, unconditionally accepting reality? Well, it kind of means letting go of the shoulds and the oughts and the coulds and looking at, okay, this is what's here. Whether or not I like it, it is what it is. So now how am I going to be effective rather than trying to decide it shouldn't be that way. So if um, I have just lost a job, I can't really do anything about getting another job until I can accept, okay, I have lost this job. As long as I'm in that place of judging, well, I shouldn't have lost this job. I should have done this. I should have done that. Well, my boss should have, should have, should have. As long as we're doing that, we're not really accepting the reality. When I can say, okay, I am currently jobless. This is the reality. What do I want to do with that? Then I'm in that place of accepting it, and I'm ready to move forward, and I'm less anxious. You um, have a chapter titled, Our View of God Affects Anxiety. Um, Again, we often feel guilty if we are experiencing being anxious or worrying. But how does our view of God feed our understanding of our current situation that may produce anxiety or we may find rest in because of how we view him? In the book, I use myself as an example um, because I grew up in a Christian home um, and was raised in the church. 
But yet my view of God, um, I discovered as an adult, was a little off because I always viewed him as someone who loved me. But it was kind of this love like, well, I have to love her, not that he actually liked me. And it was much more that he loved me because he had to, but he was up there kind of keeping track of all my mistakes. And somehow I could make enough mistakes that, you know, he was just going to kind of give up on me. Um, and that view of God then makes one really, really anxious and really, really concerned about making sure you do all the do's that he writes in the Bible and don't do any of the don'ts because you don't want to make him mad, right? Versus if I, and as I learned over time, that that's not how God thinks about us. God loves us exactly the way we are, and he likes us exactly the way we are. There's a verse in Colossians that when it's written in um, the Living Bible that was the original Living Bible, not the new Living Bible, it says that we stand before him right now with nothing that he could even chide us for. So he's not up there keeping a list of everything we do that's wrong. He's up there saying, we can do this. We can do it. Let's keep trying again. We'll get there. Um, And when we have that sort of a view of God, then we can be much more relaxed and we can come to him rather than being afraid of him. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. For more of my conversation with Gene Holthouse, go to ChristianOutlook.com. And while you're at our site, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, Mike Cook, Alex Perez, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. <laughs>